And welcome into Mile High Magazine. This is Murphy Houston. Glad to have you on board. Hope you're having a great weekend. Hope you're safe. Hope you're healthy. And through all the pandemic and all the other situations that have been going on here in 2020, it appears we've not forgotten, but have kind of delayed being involved with the census here in Colorado. And joining me is Susan Stark, a former clinical social worker who works with the Census Bureau, the Colorado branch. Declare it all up. Susan, how are you? I'm fine. Good to talk to you again, Murph. Yeah, good talking to you, too. Well, let's just start from the beginning. So people that maybe not have filled out their census, what is the census? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize the census is not political. It was uh, politicized um, early on. But actually, it's mandated in the sixth sentence of our Constitution. It's happened every 10 years since 1790. Um, back in that time, it was conducted on horseback, um, and it's a head count of every person living in the United States, not just citizens. Um, so it's been something that we've done every 10 years since our country's founding. Well, and people say, well, that's really nice. We get to get this little thing in the email or whatever we get. But tell them why it's so important to participate in the census. Well, there are two major reasons um, for Colorado to strive to get as complete a count of pos- as possible of our residents. First, um, the census numbers that we compile determine the amount of federal funding in Colorado for our residents uh, for 55 different state programs. Um, for every person that we leave uncounted in Colorado, we also leave on the table over 10 years. That would be a total of nearly $13 billion we might lose if if we don't count everyone. So these programs include such things as highway planning and construction, federal Pell grants and loans for college students, health clinics, fire departments, uh, children's health programs, school lunches, special education, Um, Head Start, Rural Electrification, uh, Low Income Home Energy Assistance, Unemployment Insurance. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, Crime Victim Assistance, uh, Prevention and Treatment of Substance Abuse, Business and Industry Loans. Um, So if we have an undercount of 1% of our population... That will equal six hundred and thirty million dollars over a decade. That's an amazing we amount of money. And to lose a lot of money just by people not participating or thinking that it doesn't affect them, so why do it? Exactly. And everybody's so afraid these days because I guess the new way, in fact, the way I did the census, it comes to you in an email. It took me a, a total of five minutes, seriously, to fill out the census. And explain how that works because it's real simple and it's not invasive at all. No, absolutely not. Um, And I want to come back to another reason why the census is important. But let me first say that it's so important to realize the census is easy to to do. Some people worry that it's pages and pages of forms, but it's really between 9 and 12 questions. It takes 5 to 10 minutes to complete. There are three ways to do it on your own. One is by email, and you can access that email by going to census2020.gov. Very easy True. Um, e- uh, online way to do it. 
Um, you can also uh, take the census by phone. So um, for people who don't have access to a computer or the Internet, the phone number that you call is 844-330-2020. And you can speak to someone in the language you're most comfortable with. They have actually 59 different languages from native speakers with whom you can um, conduct your census on the phone. That's amazing. Um, On the email version, uh, you can access 13 different languages. Um, The other way that you can do it is that you can request a paper form. That's the old-fashioned way that we were all used to, since this is the first time that the census has been conducted and available uh, online. So you can request uh, that form, fill it out in your home, and mail it in. So these are three ways to be, be a participant in the census that are completely safe. And if you participate, you won't have somebody coming to your door, a census enumerator, um, to conduct those nine questions with you, um, which people might be worried about during the time of COVID. So if you participate by email, by phone, or by regular mail, no one's going to come to your door asking you to do the census. But at one time or another... And before before we go on with that, let's back up to you said you you wanted to mention another yes. reason why it's so, so important to do the census. Yes. So the second major reason is that the census is um, what determines um, the distribution of political power across states. It's what affects our redistricting, our reapportionment. The census is reported to the executive branch of the government after it's finished every 10 years, and that's the process that begins reapportionment or redistribution. This affects our the number of legislators we have in the House of Representatives in Washington. And Colorado, because of our significant population growth over the past 10 years, stands to gain at least one and maybe two seats in Congress. And again, all of that is based on how completely we count all the people that live in our state through the census. And that's very important, that political end of it. You don't think about that. Maybe you don't even think about the money end of it, but political end is pretty important, too. Very important, yeah. Well, let's get ahead again. Now, somebody, as far as filling out the census, if you haven't done it, the three easy ways that Susan Stark mentioned, somebody might come to your door. Tell them about that a little bit, Susan. Well, the um, Census Bureau had to kind of come to a grinding halt in terms of their in-person contacts. My volunteer group, we had to stop our work. We were going out to senior residences and groups of older adults to talk to them about the importance of the census. And, of course, we had to stop all that in March. Um, The Census Bureau, though, has not stopped working and has still been reaching out to groups, for example, that work with immigrants or church groups or synagogue groups to ask all of those um, entities to contact their constituents and say, gee, the census is really important. Don't forget to participate. So the census is also, the Census Bureau has also been reworking how they are going to utilize their employees that do need to make personal contact with people who haven't filled out the census. Um, so um, certainly they, my own daughter has been hired as uh, a census enumerator, 
And so she um, is going to go through a training by the census about how to handle in-person contact safely to keep her safe and to keep the person that she's meeting with safe um, given the COVID um, uh, pandemic. Um, they're very concerned about everybody's I'm health sure, and safety. As they should be. Right. And, of course, a lot of the PR and the reminders to participate were overshadowed by all of the things that we were hearing about the pandemic. So there's been sort of a blank place here where we haven't been able to deal with the pandemic. The other thing that the Census Bureau has done is change some of the deadlines. So um, original deadlines were in, um, you know, April and May to respond in person by the three ways that I told you about. Sure. That has been extended now to October 31st. There's a little pressure off you there. Now you can get it done. No excuses. Right, right. So it's not too late to do any of those, either email, um, uh, phone, or um, requesting the, the paper form to come to your house. It's not too late. So don't think that just because the earlier information said there was a deadline in April or May that you can't still do that personal response. The good news is that even in the midst of COVID, we have a response rate in Colorado um, of about 63%, 63, 64. I didn't check it today, but 63, 64%. Um, And 10 years ago, we um, had... um, I think about 72%, but we really would like to get above that, oh, sure. given the fact that we could have more representation in Congress for our state. That, that's necessary. So, Susan, let me ask you, people are maybe that haven't done it say, what do you mean these questions aren't invasive? What are they going to ask me? Can you relate to those questions a little bit? Right. So the questions that, first of all, it's important for people to know that the census is done by housing unit. So the mailing you got, even if it had your name on it, if you're the only person in the house, um, doesn't just isn't just for you to fill out. It would be one person in the housing unit or household filling out the census for everyone who lived there as of April 1st. Um, and the questions relate to things like um, age. Um, there are some questions. There are questions about race but not citizenship there are no questions about citizenship that's what people got scared yeah, about you're right, earlier on right um so there aren't any questions about um citizenship so there is a question about whether or not anybody in the household is um has origins um hispanic or latino or spanish origins but that's not a new question that's been there i think since the 90s okay um, and there are other questions about things like sex, birth date, um, your phone number, and that's asked because sometimes if there seems to be some um, information that was left out or something, they'd like to have a phone number to call back to double-check on that, but that's hardly ever used. Um, and so the questions are, are nobody's ever going to ask things such as your Social Security number or, or a credit card number or anything like that. And under Title 13 of the U.S. Code, all the information is kept private. 
um, under penalty of law. It cannot be published or shared with any other agencies or organizations. It can't be shared with the IRS or with an employer or a landlord or with the housing authority. And Census Bureau employees are considered career public servants. They take a lifetime oath of confidentiality. I didn't know that. Fined, yeah, they can be fined up to $250,000 if they violate wow. that. The information collected is used only in aggregate. By that, I mean it's used only in summary form. Um, and household information isn't made available, like uh, at the National Archives, until 72 years after that census. So the information we give now won't even be in the National Archives um, until 2092. And... The National Archives are, are a place where people go to, you know, like trace sure. their family information right. way back. Where did the family live? When did they arrive in, in America? Things like that. But none of that that we give this year will be available at all until 2092. Yeah, not to worry about that too much. Not for me anyway. No, no. I'm not, not going to worry about no, it. No, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll tell them anything they want to know. I'll be long gone. <laughs> So uh, what about, is there an age where it starts? Is it 18? Is it any age person? Everybody is counted. We count every human being living in the United States. Well, that's the Um, important part, again, for the money aspect of this whole deal. Very important. So if a household gets the form, um, the head of the household or the person designated to fill out the form in the household first fills out the information about him or herself, and then it has, so that's resident number one, and then if there are other people living in the household as of April 1st, uh, there's a list of, you know, the same seven questions for resident number two, resident number three, resident number four, Uh and that means everybody from one month old to 110 years old, everybody. So we want to count every human being. Sometimes people think, oh, a baby, why would, I don't need to count a baby. What does that mean? Well, that's a head count. Sure it that's is. That's a human being living in our state who deserves representation and access to the kinds of benefits that federal funds help us with. Exactly. Well, Susan, quickly before I let you go, give me the website again and the phone number. Okay. The website is um, 2020census dot gov 2020 census dot gov and the phone number is 844-330-2020 susan stark thank you very much for your work keep it up the colorado branch of the census bureau and get that census taken care of it means a lot to the state of colorado susan and you, we all have plenty of time since we're sitting around oh, yeah. in our houses you might COVID. as well you got it, it takes five minutes of your unbusy day <laughs> to fill <laughs> that's that. right <laughs> Susan, Thank you, Murph. Yeah, good taking talking to you, Susan. Take care. Bye-bye. Hang on. It's Mile High Magazine. Don't go away. We're going to update what's going on in the state of Colorado with the COVID-19 with Dr. John Douglas of Tri-County Health on Mile High Magazine. Now we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. 
And welcome back. It's Mile High Magazine. Murphy Houston here. Time for our weekly visit with Dr. John Douglas, who runs Tri-County Health, formerly with the CDC. And uh, let's find out what's happening here in the state of Colorado. And uh, believe it or not, I'm back at the radio station, back at the microphone and uh, working in the studio. I have my own studio now. They're making me feel like a king because I think they're feeling guilty. They dragged this seven-year-old body back to the radio station. Who knows what's going to happen now, for goodness sakes. Well, well-deserved work. <laughs> and that handsome voice there was Dr. John Douglas, who runs Tri-County Health, who we know, formerly with the CDC, who's been kind of the man behind the scene with all this COVID-19 stuff going on in the state of Colorado. And we wanted to catch up a bit with you. First, John, how are you holding up? Uh, most I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Um, uh, we're seeing a lot of good progress uh, vis-a-vis how the epidemic is going. Um, uh, caution remains the order of the day, but uh, I've got a great team, and we're doing great. I guess we just should start off. What's the latest update for Colorado? Because a lot of things, have, we haven't talked to you really in a couple of weeks. What's going on with the restaurants opening up? What's going on with more businesses opening up, allowing people in? Is the COVID spiking? Are we holding steady? What's up? You know, I'd say at this point we are, are holding steady or even improving. Um, uh, we, a number of states around the country, including states not far from here, Arizona and Utah, for example, have seen spikes that seem to be timing-wise related to Memorial Day, lots of people getting out and kind of getting back to more normal life, but that resulted in more exposures. And and those folks are actually not just seeing increased numbers of cases, which could be due to testing, but actually increased numbers of people in the hospital, which is more ominous and probably a more reliable indicator that things are getting uh, at least temporarily worse again. We haven't seen that. Uh, We're tracking on our uh, number of cases, those look good, really, in all three of our counties. Uh, we're tracking on a number of hospitalizations. Those look good in all three of our counties. Uh, again, as you see what happened in Utah and Arizona, that could change. So we don't take anything for granted. But I, I think at this point, our businesses, our citizens have been uh, responsible and uh, have sort of taken uh, what it means to get back to more normal, but not really the old normal, I think, quite seriously. So I'm quite pleased. Jayla, what do you think of that? I think it's good news. I'm really excited about that, you know, because this this virus um, tends to be a little more deadly for older adults, so that always makes me feel better. Um, We're still having some challenging facilities, though, um, with COVID. Fewer, though, I think we had three or four add-on, three or four new facilities, bringing our total to about 115 um, in the state with COVID. So, um, that's that's the part, you know. Just I just really caution everyone that's out there to think about the older adults in your life because that's that that's uh, who is very very vulnerable to this this virus. Seems to be that way, right, uh, Doctor John? The, se- the senior citizens are still the big target. They are, and absolutely, jail is just right on uh, the bullseye there. Um, I will say that there's been some interest. She's absolutely right. Our, our long-term care facilities, our residential facilities for seniors have been really uh, impacted in a major way. That's where a vast amount of the suffering has come from in terms of people getting so sick that they need to be hospitalized or even deaths occurring. Um, and so that remains a major topic of, of concern and focus. Um, she's right. The number of outbreaks are down, but we cannot let our guard down at all. Now, one thing I'm hearing a lot about, and I'm sure Jay Lewis as well, is is the loneliness factor inside these facilities yes. that, that leaving yes. people shut away is just 
a, a, a huge challenge over time. And so there's some draft guidance that's uh, out that I think will be finalized soon that will be carefully allowing visitors to go into facilities like that. And if we can do it in a careful, thoughtful way, like we've so far done restaurants and uh, uh, personal services businesses and whatnot, I'm cautiously, underlying cautiously, optimistic that we can try to find a better balance because I think loneliness can be a, a, a devastating issue on its own. Yeah, it can kill people just as easy as a virus can. So, you know, it's it's um, it's maybe not as easy to see, but it is very detrimental to folks living in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Um, you know, we've seen people who have dementia who have really declined because they haven't had the interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really shown me a lot. I, I mean, I'm learning a lot through this process. Um, all those things that you learned in school are kind of, are, 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 you're getting to see what what isolation does to people, um, and and it, it's not pretty. Oh, not at all. And isolation, and not just for seniors. I mean, let's look back at the few days with all the protesting going on around America, and I think a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that people just have to get out of their house. Do you agree with that, John? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting topic in and of itself. Where first, first of all, I do agree that the uh, being pinned up in the epidemic uh, almost certainly uh, fueled some of that energy. Uh, but let's let's be honest. I mean, a, a big part of the fueling of that, of course, was our uh, sad legacy of uh, a racial injustice in this country. I think you saw. Right. We, we could not have asked for a more graphic example of that than the video of George Floyd's killing. Um, and frankly, the COVID epidemic has impacted our communities of color much more than our white communities. I mean, like most other health issues, uh, communities of color, partly because they're doing the essential jobs, they can't telework from uh, their home like I can and, and uh, Jayla can. Uh, they get impacted in a big way by that. So I think it was a... Yeah, and a, their kids a, can't access school like you know, uh, my kids can. So I think um, it was a confluence yeah, so. of things. And, and we're waiting, by the way, cautiously to see whether or not that's going to fuel uh, resurgent infections. We haven't seen it yet, but, you know, this was a big set of public gatherings. The good news is it was outdoors. The good news is that many people, but not everybody, were wearing masks. But it was uh, uh, fueled by lots of things, and it may have some implications for COVID. Well, and are we prepared for that, John? If things all of a sudden pick up rapidly as the state of Colorado with hospitals and docks and emergency facilities, are we prepared for that to happen? You know, we're relatively prepared. I mean, I look at the hospital statistics regularly and their availability of ICU beds, ventilators, personal protective equipment looks good at this point, but it's not perfect. I mean, if we should suddenly get massive spikes, the kind of stuff we were worried about in in March, those services could get overwhelmed. So it's not like, you know, we're, we're good to go. We can get back to normal. And, and, you know, when events like this happen, we have to be really careful. One thing I would say is that some of your listeners may have heard the term contact tracing. Yes, that's big. This, this is a situation where when we identify somebody with infection, we talk to them, we try to help them understand how to be isolated to avoid transmitting infection, and then we try to identify who they've been in touch with or in contact with, not so much because we want to create a registry or do some sort of police action, but rather, we want to give them the opportunity to understand, oh, yes, you've been exposed. You should be tested, and you could be contagious to others. 
Um, and so we're, we're trying to get the word out that this will be an important component, and it's, it's done to really to provide a service to the people that have been exposed. Well, it seems like, right, what you just talked about, John, is so key at this particular point of the COVID-19. My wife and I were talking the other day. It seems like that we've been talking about this forever. Actually, it's only been, what, three, maybe four months. That's not a lot of time, but it is a lot of time to many people. But that some people can have the COVID but not pass it on, or it gets confusing after a while, don't you think? It's very confusing. There's been lots of confusion. I'll give you an example of that. The World Health Organization put out a statement the other day that confused many people. They implied that they thought that the role of people who were feeling well but were infected, people that are called asymptomatic, in terms of transmission, was not very high. Well, that knocked a lot of us back on our heels because that's not at all what the science has been telling us. And it has lots of implications for whether people who feel well think they have anything to worry about, whether they need to wear face masks, for example. Well, it turns out the next day they said, Whoops, let us correct that. Oh. Asymptomatic transmission is important. But it, it, it's an issue, and it, it, it's one of the things I do think that has confused people. Um, and, and clarity is really one of our best friends at this point in time. And when that kind of thing happens, it's regrettable. Well, and it seems to change all the time. That's why from the beginning, like you, Dr. John, quit watching TV because the news changes every day. It can't keep up. Well, on the one hand, you're right, Murph. You could just say, let's let's turn off the TV and, and just look at the mountains like Jayla's doing. But I, <laughs> I, I, I do think it's important to stay up to date. And that's why, frankly, I appreciate these weekly conversations because you give me a chance to sort of share what we think is going on. Um, I do, if I if you don't mind, uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of something called the National Vaccine Advisory Committee. Okay. It's advice to the Department of Health and Human Services about um, – uh, vaccines in general. I'm a, I represent a group of public health officials, uh, officials as a liaison to this group. We heard a fascinating update uh, two days ago on COVID vaccine development, and, and this is historic. We, we have the fastest development going on that has ever occurred with any infectious disease. There are over 100 products around the world that are being developed right now. Wow. And NIH has identified about 10 that look most promising, and they're going to whittle that down to about three to five that will be beginning phase three trials, which are the really big trials, which tell you, is the vaccine really safe, which it has to be, and is it effective? And, uh, again, we don't know when we're going to get the news on that, and there are a lot of issues involved with it. But I walked out of that going, oh, man, this is moving faster than, than I thought. Can't get complacent, but this could be a real opportunity in the in the uh, months to come. And, and John, I'm kind of curious, and maybe Jayla, this is kind of up your alley a little bit. When they do this vaccine testing before they put it out to the general public, do they test people of all ages? Again, getting back to the seniors who are most likely to get the COVID, do they get tested to see if this helps? There's going to be a very deliberate attempt, Murph, to include people in the trial that may be most uh, impacted by the infection. So that's going to include healthcare workers because they're going to be probably on the front lines, um, but then also seniors because many vaccines don't work as well in older people. And of the three to five vaccines that we're, we're testing, for example, if vaccines A and B look better in older people than vaccines C, D, and E, that would be really important information because that's those are the vaccines we'd want to use in older people. What do you think of that, Jayla? I, I think that's really good. I think, you know, it's particularly important to be super cautious 
um, when it comes to the vaccines. I, I think it was in the 70s, uh, wasn't it, uh, Dr. Douglas, when we had the swine flu vaccine, and a lot of people had really bad results from that, including one of my family members. Um, uh, so, so you can, I mean, there can be really serious consequences to vaccines too. So I think it's important. And then, and then think about older adults, uh, usually, or, or, or some take a lot of medications as well. I'm just thinking of my own parents and, um, you know, it, it just wanting to make sure that there's no, uh, trouble with the vaccine plus all those other medications. Yeah, Jill, those are really excellent points. And, and I will say the, uh, the, the, the safety component of this, that's why I emphasize that even before, is the vaccine effective is really critical. Um, that example you gave from the 1970s with the swine flu vaccine was a particularly tragic example because not only yeah. was the vaccine probably not adequately tested for safety before it went out, but it turns out that the swine flu epidemic, which filled a bunch of soldiers in New Jersey, which kind of got President Ford uh, rolling on this thing, um, uh, I guess it was actually President Carter, uh, never really materializes an epidemic. So now that's not a question for COVID. We know it's materializes an epidemic, but your, your, uh, uh, words of caution, caution is coming up every conversation this morning is really important. I would strongly support the notion these vaccines have got to be proven to be safe. Well, that's for sure. Dr. John Douglas, Tri-County Health, boy, we do appreciate you coming on every week with these updates. And that's very encouraging about the vaccine and that you're kind of on top of that information for us. We appreciate your time, and hopefully you can give us 15 minutes next week again. What do you think? Uh, uh, it's, it's a regular part of my week, like a good cup of coffee, so I'll look forward to it. <laughs> really? Uh, that's awesome. And I suppose Jill is oh, the nice cream, and I'm day. just the black coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the cream and sugar. <laughs> okay, John, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for your time. All right. Thanks. Yep, take care of yourself. Thank you, Dr. John Douglas with Tri-County Health, formerly with the CDC, and thank you for being on Mile High Magazine, you guys. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. Murphy Houston here. Talk to you next week.